Clear Channel's iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Better than before. An hour of beauty, health, fitness, and lifestyle advice from renowned columnist and author Jane Wilkins Michael and her guest, top experts in their fields. Join Jane's campaign to become better than before. Now, here she is, Jane Wilkins Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show, Better Than Before, on iHeartRadio Talk. I'm Jane. I'm coming to you live from New York City. I want to thank you so much for being with us. And now, as always, please welcome to the show my producer, the woman who is younger than springtime and brings warmth and wonderfulness wherever she walks, Lori. (laughs) That's what we call in journalism an alliteration. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Wow, you you really know how to... um, to really boost someone's uh, spirits, Jane. Seriously, <laughs> you, you always boost mine. It's only it's only fair that I, I return the favor. Um, now, speaking of springtime, Lori, that which is what we call a segue, um, a review copy of my new book, "Long Live You: A Step by Step Plan to Look and Feel Better Than Before," is out. I just got a copy, and there's Yay. a butterfly and flowers on the cover. That's very spring-like, very pretty. And I was in the elevator this morning. I was holding the book, and a woman walked in, and she said, what a beautiful cover on that book. And I said, it's mine. And she looked at me strangely, and she said, don't worry, dear. I'm not going to take it from you. (laughs) It shows you how paranoid New Yorkers are, right? (laughs) I said, no, I just meant I wrote it. (laughs) So the the book is available on Amazon.com. So um, now... April is spring, of course, the beginning of spring, although in New York we, we might not have known that, being that it snowed two days ago. Um, and we spring clean both our homes and, and our minds. And after the break, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Keith Fargo, who is the Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association. And the good news is that there's so much more research being done on Alzheimer's and dementia, and there are now ways to delay it and even prevent it. So we're, we're going to hear all about it right after the break. But first, a clear, organized, allergy-free home goes a very long way in clearing your mind. And my next guest is actually in the book. She is featured in My Natural Remedies Wrong. And Lori, picture this, okay? A young woman grows up in the hot and pollen-filled Texas climate. She fights a daily battle with severe allergies and asthma, then goes on to become one of the pioneers of the eco-friendly movement, helping others overcome their own battles with what she calls the wheezes and sneezes. And it may sound like a reality show, but no, it is in fact the real-life story of Robin Wilson. And Robin never imagined that all her years of suffering would lead to her life's work in in healthy space design and educating consumers. She's an ambassador to the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. And she now considers her decades of allergy angst a blessing in disguise. She is also the founder and CEO of Robin Wilson Home, author of the new book, Clean Design, Wellness for Your Lifestyle, and has a hypoallergenic line of pillows and comforters in Bed Bath & Beyond. I actually have the pillows. I love them. And Robin believes that a successful business and being eco-friendly aren't a contradiction but rather go hand in hand. Welcome, Robin Wilson. Thank you so much for being with us. Hello, and thank you for having me on this beautiful day. It is. Today is actually a beautiful day. And the allergy... 
It's, it's about to be allergy moment for everyone, though. I know. I was just going to say that. <laughs> the, the allergies will begin, right? Um, you know, when I interviewed you, I, I also interviewed you for my column, and you said um, it was pretty awful when you were growing up, playing outside and having to come in due to a drippy nose. But once you were indoors, you also started to wheeze because of the carpet and pet dander. Right. Uh, but you were... You were lucky enough to have forward-thinking parents who took you to a doctor who had unorthodox methods for this time, who told them to change the indoor air quality in your house, and that meant uh, putting down tiles and, and, and uh, hardwood floors and keeping the dog outside. Uh, my mother was also way ahead of her time, but that meant us drinking raw liver juice. So, oh. <laughs> so go. I, oh. I rather would have been allergy free. Right? Um, <laughs> so let's talk about this. You know, everyone is concerned now with toxins in the environment, and just and some of it we can't control. But the ones in our home, we we should control, and we don't even know how to do it. Um, and eco-friendly products, thanks to you in a great part, have come a long way that we now find even cleaning products on the shelves with, you know, in mass um, chain stores along with the, the toxic ones that we all know about that we probably should not be using. So, um, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about the evolution of allergy-free and eco-friendly products. Well, that's a wonderful, wonderful segue to simply say there are free solutions and there are very expensive solutions in the market. And I recommend starting at the lowest part of your budget and finding a way to enter your home with no uh, shoes on is the lowest price thing. It's free. Just take your shoes off and don't track in toxins from the outside and try to keep your home a, a positive indoor air quality place. Um, that's first. Uh, second, a lot of people think about their their drapes as just a, a wall decoration or window decoration, and they never wash them or vacuum them. And so you can find someone for 10 years having just these dust catchers sitting there. And so an easy thing to do when you're cleaning is also to add your blinds and shades, use those attachments on your vacuum. Right. We're, we're going to get, but let's go one by one, room by room, which I think is oh. really important. Also, you know, I, I think it's, some people, my, my son included, says, um, you know, take your shoes off when you, of course, when you walk into his home. But, <clears throat> you know, he doesn't have a dog. But there's some people who say that and they sleep with their dog who has walked mm -hmm. in every city street. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. you, you know, I think that also can be allergy producing as much as I, I adore I agree. animals. I <laughs> I mean, but you don't want to you don't want to upset those who love their pets. So I simply say that if you are going to have your pet in your bed, just wash the the animal a little more frequently. Um, and if uh, if you are allergic or asthmatic, then I recommend not having the pet in your sleeping quarters. Yeah, or wash his little feet at least, and walk around the floor. <laughs> Um, so let's start in the bedroom. Let's go room by room. Um, you know, obviously it's a very important room in the house because we spend, uh, it's both our personal retreat and we spend an average, what if, or, or we should spend eight hours a night sleeping. Um, now what do we need to know about the comforters and, and pillows? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to do a little plug, but go to bedbathbeyond.com and check out Robin Wilson Home products because everything's hypoallergenic. Um, the first thing is your pillows use the rule of threes because the average time for most people when you ask them when was the last time you washed or replaced your pillow they say six years and I say that's dirty pajamas for six years you've got to replace or wash your pillow 
And so we have a rule of three. Every three weeks, wash the zippered pillow protector. Every three months, if you can, wash the pillow. And if you haven't done any of the above, then every three years, definitely replace your pillow. So it's not enough just to wash the pillowcase. You really have to get the whole pillow. Oh, or yes, it's uh, the dander, the dust mites, the drool, all the things that we have, <laughs> what yeah. pollen from our hair, um, you really must wash your pillow. Or, um, as I say, have a zippered pillow protector on it, and you wash that every three weeks. The, that's, a bad, yeah. that's a basic. And so if you think about it, if you uh, allergen triggers can be dust mites, they can also be pollen. And so you might wake up in the middle of the night wheezing and sneezing, or you might have dark circles under your eyes because you're really not sleeping, or there's an allergen trigger. And that once you clean your pillow, all of a sudden you, you breathe easier. You wonder, oh, is it the new pillow? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, the pillow, if you haven't washed it or replaced it, and it, right now um, it weighs more than when you got it um, because of the, the toxins that come off of our body. Um, from pollen or or other dust or or as I say dust mites that um, that populate our bodies and our skin. So I don't want to yeah. scare people, but I no no no. Your, but that, that's your bed, that's a good point. Your bed, yeah. you spend one third of your life sleeping. So make sure that your bed is clean. Make sure you have a mattress pad to protect the mattress. Because again, think about it. If you just have sheets on your bed, the mattress is being populated by dust mites. So you need a protector over your mattress. The mattress pad is an essential. Then your sheet, which you hopefully will wash every week and warm to hot water. And then in your pillow, you have the pillow itself, but on top of that, a zippered pillow protector. The pillow case um, and, and you're washing all those things frequently. So you hopefully are doing the basics. And then if you have a comforter, put a duvet cover over it and wash that frequently. Now, are feathers uh, allergic? Do most people uh, have a problem with feathers? So we should not have actual feathers in our, because I know yours are completely hypoallergenic. They do not have feathers. Right. We do not, if someone has, if someone has the trigger to the protein in feathers, we do not recommend trying to, cover it up with a pillow protector. Just get a hypoallergenic pillow, which is made with a polyfill that's been hyperwashed. And so it's, it's, the, it's the same material pretty much that you see in gauze, um, medical gauze. So it's not toxic at all. And um, when you think about one in five people suffering from allergies or asthma, that's 60 million people. Yes, and right. if it's not them, it's their it's their cousin or their sibling. And so many, many people should be aware of the simple solutions that they can exercise in their home. Right. Are dust mice living or are they just from the dust? Are they like little bugs? <laughs> I always hear that. I'm wondering, are they really um, like little mites that walk around um, or are they just sort of like the... Dust mites do live, but what we're allergic to is their carcass. And so the easiest way to describe it is these are microscopic mites, and they eat our skin. And if we didn't have them, we would have bark for skin. That's the best way to look at it. So when you are um, looking through your curtain and you see a shaft of sunlight and you see these dust particles Mm -hmm. flying around, that's dust mites. 
carcasses or dust mites flying off your body. I'm kidding when I say that, but it's right. it's that's what you're seeing. And so under your bed, dust bunnies are. It's an electro electromagnetic field of hair and dust, and um, maybe even the corn chips you ate a couple of weeks ago, and it just all pulls together under your bed. And so dust mites are microscopic. You can't see them, and everyone has them. Your goal is to manage them and to limit them. And so you cannot fully eliminate them. Yeah. We put my son up in college house. one year and we cleaned, obviously we're cleaning his room around the bed. And and then we saw um, chicken wings. <laughs> I said, Philip, when did you have those? He goes, oh, uh, must have been like in September. Now, mind you, this is like April. He said, oh, oh that's my. where they went. I said, oh, God. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of dust mites. I mean, exactly. Ooh. Exactly. Um, now, if but we stay in the bedroom, Robin, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we all love closet space. I think I've taken over all the closets in my apartment, <laughs> although my daughter is a close second, and she's not mm-hmm. even living here at the moment, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, it, it's organized, but it gets cluttered. Um, yeah. How does all this clutter impact our health? And if so, how can we reduce it? Well, I say to most people, if, again, using the same analogy as drapes, there are outfits we all hold on to and we've had them though since let's say college and you're just like, oh, I just don't want to throw away that jacket. It's going to come back in style or I'm going to be that size again. And, um, and not to throw water on a parade, it's, you know, if you're going to keep something for a long period of time, put it in a zippered bag, um, Put it in a storage closet or your attic, but don't keep allowing dust collectors to cat to just move with you home to home and place to place. Um, if most people got a baby wipe, and and if you have a hardwood surface on your floor in your closet, and you just ran that baby wipe along the baseboard of your closet, you would be shocked at how much dust you would pick up or dirt you would pick up in, just in your closet. I know. And so I recommend to people, um, treat your closet just like the rest of your home. You've got to clean it. You've got to vacuum in there. You've got to um, get the corners. Um, and you've got to remember also that um, that the pollen, maybe if you don't dry clean your suits all the time, the pollen or the dirt or dust from your garments is still falling on the ground somewhere or within that closet. And so your air quality in your closet could also be bad, not just from the dry cleaning chemicals, but from the toxins that you got on the subway or, or at an event. That's, I think I think I need a hazmat suit now <laughs> to go no, into my no, apartment. No. You know, you know let me let me let me keep this on a positive note because we all know that we meet and go to different places, and we aren't. You know, we come home and we take a shower and we walk in our front door. So the simple solutions, you know, take your shoes off at the front door, carry them to your closet. That's first. Two, if you have an outdoor coat that you wear on the subway or outside, keep that in the front closet. Don't put that in with your clean clothes. Three, every once in a while, clean the dust bunnies from underneath your bed, your dresser, and in your closet and make sure that your bed linens are washed on a regular basis and you replace your pillow every three to five years. So, so that's, that's those are the simple things. Number. If you have um, if you have drapes on your walls in the um, bedroom, make sure they're vacuumed um, every once in a while. And I often say once in a while to some people is five years. So I just say when they do the time change, at least twice a year, just do that and you'll have a much 
cleaner sanctuary in which you sleep. You know, it's interesting. One of my sons, the one that does not ask us to take our shoes off, um, he took, he came over for dinner one night and he, from the subway. And I said, did you wash your hands? He goes, mom, a little dirt is good. It builds up my immune system. And I said, well, you know, there's dirt and there's subway dirt. But some people, some people actually think that way, that it will boost our uh, immune system, but I, I don't mm. think so. You know, it's just as my son another s- excuse for not washing his hands. But um, mm. so that mm. doesn't. I mean, that just was. Uh, I could, but some people do think that way. Interestingly mm. enough, isn't that yeah. interesting? <laughs> um, but you know, I always think you know if you're on the subway or on public transportation, your hair, your head is leaning back against the seat, and then you sleep on the pillow with your hair that you've you know mm-hmm. were, were leaning on the seat against and then you exactly. sleep on it so it's going on your skin which to me exactly. it's exactly um, now you mentioned uh, water before uh, you talk a lot about sitting water in the house which could lead to mold which obviously has a big impact on allergies and asthma um, now I know that people when they think of spring cleaning they don't normally associate spring cleaning with sitting water and mold um, but what is how do we have that in our homes well um, there are so many different areas um, from the attic to the basement. You know, the attic, especially after winter, like we've had up here in the Northeast, if you have a home, you need to go up into your attic or have a professional go into your attic and just see if there are any leaks. Maybe the flashing um, was pulled away from the roof and maybe there's just a small leak, but ultimately that could cause um, drama in your home. Um, the gutters, for example, um, if you had ice dams in your gutters, then maybe the water will leak into the walls of the home. So you just need to just double check at the end of a hard winter like we've had. But then um, most people don't think about the window sills. And what if you had a window that maybe you didn't close fully um, this winter um, in a guest bedroom or something? There could be water that, again, came into your space. So just have someone really check every outer or exterior area of your home. And, and you it, mentioned earlier about the shower curtain. That's also mold and mildew, right, from the water of the shower and the bath. That's right. So you have the the shower and the, the bath. You have the, um, what do you call it, under the sink. Just double-check that under the sink you don't have a minor leak in the pipes. Uh, those are some of the areas that people don't check, and they also, they'll see the, I call it the grungy, dark circle at the base of their shower curtain, and they spray Windex or something on it, and they say, oh, it's done, but they don't realize it's mold. So I recommend, if you can, get a nylon, not a vinyl shower curtain. And vinyl has that plasticky smell when it comes out of the package. It is um, nylon, however, has no smell. It can actually be washed, and it's what most hospitals and hotels use because it doesn't attract mold or mildew as quickly. Nylon. All right, I'm going to make a note of that because I think that's that's really... Um, and, and most people think, even when you think about the children's um, toys, you know, the, the stuffed animals, they're all dust collectors and they sleep with that's them right. at night, right? So, that, right? so should you wash those also often? Well, many... Um, I experienced this as a child. My mother washed one of my favorite stuffed animals and it became disfigured. Um, I guess just the, the washing motion and I never played with that toy again but mourned it for a long time. So I tell parents, don't 
do that to your child. <laughs> it can yeah. scar them for life. But I recommend put, finding a very large Ziploc bag. Put the teddy bears, the frogs, the whatever your children's stuffed animals are. Put them in the Ziploc bag and freeze the animal over a weekend um, every month. And what happens is right before you take it out of the freezer for 48 hours or even 24 hours, you shake the bag with the animal a little above the bottom of the bag and any dust mites will crystallize any you know dirt let's say will crystallize and will fall to the bottom of the bag and you pick the animal out and your child will sleep better this oh, is fascinating i learned that from a doctor an asthma doctor and he um preaches that religiously that occasionally you know put him in the deep freeze <laughs> and um and then the animal doesn't get disfigured yeah, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about all the things that you can be allergic to. A lot of people get sick or and their kids get sick a lot and they can't pinpoint the reason for why they're sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it can just be so simple as the animals or the shower curtain or the, the, the dog or, you know, so mm-hmm. you have to be a little more conscious of what's surrounding you and, and, and take better care. And, of course, as you said, your products... Uh, Robin Wilson Home is, uh, and now they're available in Bed Bath and Beyond and other stores, correct? Bed Bath Beyond, uh, yep, and other stores. But you know, another yeah. thing we never talked about was what's on your floor and what's on your wall. Oh, well, that's your the next question. And floors. <laughs> oh, then I anticipated that that's, one. But your that's wall my next and your question. Floors are the biggest? They're the biggest surface in your home, and. So I recommend using low to no VOC paints. Um, Benjamin Moore is my favorite because they can custom match any color that you like. Um, But they have two products. One is called Aura, which is low VOC, and Natura, which is no VOC. And the the simple way to describe it is one hour after you paint, there's no paint smell. That's really the key. And it's these products self-seal. And if you were to pay a painter, and you had labor costs, they charge you by the hour. Well, that means they're priming the wall, then they paint, then they do another coat. Um, these paints are quite thick, and they have a primer built in. So imagine how low your labor costs would be um, by the end of the project. So, yes, it's uh, it's a little more expensive, perhaps, than a regular paint, but it's healthier for you. And after you paint, your guests could come over three hours later, and there's not going to be a paint smell in your home. Oh, that's wonderful. The and that's great, toxic. especially in a baby nursery. <laughs> now let's talk about wooden floors because they laminate when they clean them. And that's also disgusting, the smell, uh, right? Uh, you mean when they put the uh, seal, <laughs> the seal on, their, on the floor? Thinking Uh-oh. about it. You're coughing, thinking about it. I am Excuse too. me. You know, hardwood oh, floors are, and tile are your best surface. And I recommend, however, um, remembering that those surfaces should also be regularly cleaned with non-toxic cleansers. Um, and Method, Caldrea, and Mrs. Myers are my favorite three non-toxic products. Um, the, the key is also looking at your soft coverings because especially in an apartment in Manhattan, some of the leases require that you have to have a rug on top of that hardwood. So I happen to like, especially for families, floor carpet tiles, flor.com. They are great because, you know, I have a two-year-old, and imagine if she spills juice on a wall-to-wall carpet, you have to replace the whole carpet, which is not really sustainable living. 
However, if she spills juice on a floor carpet tile, you just pop up that one tile, use dishwashing soap, clean it, and then pop it back down. I think that's a much more sustainable way to live. Um, Excuse me. I am allergic to something that I'm in in the studio now. I'm choking. Um, Let's talk about the kitchen. Okay. So standing, going back to standing water, uh, in the kitchen, most people um, never check their refrigerator pan. There's actually a pan typically under the refrigerator. There's a little grill at the very bottom under the door. And that pan is where if you have like, let's say, an ice maker or your freezer is defrosting, that water drips into that pan. If you were to pull it out, if you have one on your refrigerator, you might just say, oh, my gosh, and put on hazmat gloves because often it's filled with mold. So that's one place to look. Also, every maybe six months, again, doing the time change, do um, do a, a wash in your your dishwasher, especially front-load um, dishwashers, the drawers, the pull-up drawers, and just run white vinegar um, in a wash with no dishes in there just to clean or kill any mold. And um, if Again, you have a uh, – if your washer or dryer is, happens to be in your kitchen or off your kitchen, do the same thing for front loaders so that um, you are keeping molds to a minimum in your space. That's really important to do. And <clears throat> also, as you say, the cleaning products that you use are – because I, I can smell them. They're very mm-hmm. toxic. And sometimes it's not even your house. Unfortunately, it's somebody else's apartment and in new york city as you know the walls are thin and you get all that toxic stuff coming in from their apartment as well exactly so we have to have you come to a major redo of all the buildings in new york robin so we don't have to suffer from you know it's 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 pretty bad when you have to inhale that stuff when you when you say to yourself we hermetically seal ourselves in to our homes in the winter and then we do it again um in the summer when we turn on our air conditioners so it's really important, even if once a week you just open your door or a window for 15 minutes, let some fresh air in. It's really important for your health. And there's, you know, my new book, Clean Design Wellness for Your Lifestyle, is a great resource for every room of your home. There are checklists. There are pieces of information from my grandmother, like, did you know toothpaste can clean crayon off the wall? Um, a lot of people would use a toxic cleanser and they don't need to. Toothpaste. So that's interesting. Toothpaste. Simple solutions. So um, the book is in uh, comes out on April seventh, uh, and will be um, available uh, as an ebook as well. So it's a good reference book that I hope people will refer to many, many times when they want the free to the fabulous solutions to keep their home healthy. Well, thank you so much. Now, where can we find you also in your product? Uh, if you tell us again. RobinWilsonHome.com, and the book is under CleanDesignBook.com. Either one will get you to us, and we um, certainly hope you go to Bed Bath Beyond and support um, hypoallergenic lifestyles. We did, and again, I use your pillows, so I can talk oh. from experience that they are <laughs> wonderful. And and um, I had a lot of symptoms of allergies. I didn't even know why, and I think it really was from the pillows that I had been using, not even knowing it. You know, so fantastic. Well, stay well. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us. Everyone stay with us after the break. We're going to meet Keith Fargo. He's Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association. You are listening to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. Stay with us after the break. We'll be right back. As listeners of our iHeartRadio Talk Show know, Jane Wilkins Michael is one of the foremost experts on all things health, beauty, and fitness. Jane has just released her highly anticipated new book, Long Live You, a step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before. In it, she shares a collection of advice, tips, and personal antidotes, along with lifestyle suggestions from some of the world's top beauty, health, and fitness experts, many of whom have been interviewed on this show. Are you hoping to make positive health decisions, improve your emotional well-being, establish a support system, give something back to your community and the world? Jane's new book will help you look years younger and also live a longer, healthier, happier, and more beautiful life. You can order Long Live You, your step-by-step plan to look and feel better than before at your local bookstore or at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, where it's available for delivery or as an ebook. Or go to Jane's website, janewilkinsmichael.com. Now, back to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show. Want to know where you can hear Jane Wilkins Michael's show better than before? Well, that's easy. You can tune into Jane via Clear Channel's iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and at bmajor.org. Now, back to Jane Wilkins Michael and better than before. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to the Jane Wilkins Michael Show on iHeartRadio Talk. Now it is my pleasure to introduce you all to Dr. Keith Fargo. Dr. Fargo is Director of Scientific Programs and Outreach at the Alzheimer's Association. He oversees the Alzheimer's Association's Trial Match Program, a service that connects people with ongoing Alzheimer's clinical research studies in their area and the Alzheimer's Association's International Society to Advance Alzheimer's Research and Treatment is another element of his day-to-day responsibilities. He also manages the Alzheimer's Association's scientific publications, including Alzheimer's and Dementia, the Journal of Alzheimer's Association, and the annual Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures report, which we're going to talk about shortly. Um, Just a word here about the Alzheimer's Association itself. It is the world's leading voluntary health organization in Alzheimer care, support, and research, and their mission is to eliminate Alzheimer's disease through the advancement of research and to provide and enhance care and support for all affected and to reduce the risk of dementia through the promotion of brain health. And, And on a personal note, having lived with a parent, who had Alzheimer's for many years. That is a very, very good thing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fargo. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. All right, let's talk about Alzheimer's itself. All right, it's something that we all dread, we all fear, and especially if you've had a parent who's had it. Tell us a little bit, what is it and how does it affect the brain? Sure. Well, that's a very good question, and and there is a lot of confusion actually about um, Alzheimer's disease and dementia and how the two relate to each other and and exactly what they are. Um, that's something we see here at the Alzheimer's Association every day. Uh, we have a uh, 24/7 helpline actually for people who are having questions or or concerns, um, and we get all sorts of questions, and and those are among them. The main thing to know is that Alzheimer's disease is not simply normal aging. 
Uh, so everyone can expect, uh, virtually everyone can expect some change in their memory or, or other cognitive abilities as they age, uh, but Alzheimer's disease is not simply normal cognitive aging. Alzheimer's disease is unfortunately a universally fatal brain disease. And one of the things that Alzheimer's causes um, uh, on the way to death, unfortunately, um, is a loss of cognitive ability um, progressing to the point where it becomes dementia, which means that it's so bad that it interferes with your daily life. Now, when you talk, when you mention dementia, a lot of people think dementia and Alzheimer's are the exact same thing. So, I mean, can you have dementia and it's not Alzheimer's and vice you versa? Well, vice versa, no. Oh, no, no, you can't. I do just explain that. Yeah, it is. Right, it, it yeah. Does, it does dementia, yeah. which is unfortunate. But, um, but you know, again, I, and I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke, um, I always, we all forget our keys or, or you know, we, whereas I, the other day I was asking someone if they had seen my cell phone and they said, well, what are you talking on? You know, <laughs> I said, uh-oh. Right. Um, and I had asked a neurologist at one point, you know, how do you know? And he said, well, it's one thing to lose your keys because we all do that from time to time. And yet another to have them in your hand and you just don't know what to do with them. So, you know, that sort of made me feel a little bit better because I still know to open the door with my keys. Um, so, but what are some of the, um, you know, what are some of the symptoms as you of Alzheimer's well, some of the initial symptoms. Yeah, well, I think you put your finger on on a good one there. And some of the initial symptoms with Alzheimer's disease have to do with um, loss of memory, typically, although it can be other um, cognitive changes as well, such as judgment making, or, uh, judgment and decision making. Uh, but memory is the most the most common early um, symptom that people notice with Alzheimer's disease. But you made a really good point that um, just because you're having trouble with your memory does not necessarily mean it's Alzheimer's disease. And I'd like to say a couple of, of things about that, if I may. Sure. The, f the first of which is that uh, we actually make available on our website uh, a, a list of uh, potential signs of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and it's a program we have called Know the Ten Signs. And people can go straight to our website and check that out if they're interested. The main thing, though, is, is memory loss that disrupts your daily life. So as you mentioned, not knowing what to do with your keys. Um, some people talk about losing their keys. That's you know, not really problematic. Uh, forgetting where you parked in a, a parking lot is not really problematic. Forgetting what kind of car you own would be potentially problematic. And when you get to that kind of, of situation, you really do need to go see a physician. So people who have memory concerns um, should not try to diagnose themselves, um, and they should also not um, uh, just dismiss those concerns, um, especially if they're you know, the kind of, of startling concern that you've talked about, for example, not knowing how to use your keys, not knowing what to do with your keys, uh, or you know, getting lost potentially on the way home from work. Uh, so my actually my my wife's grandmother um, actually died from Alzheimer's disease unfortunately and there was a time that we were out at a restaurant with her 
when she was already fairly progressed into the disease, but she could still, you know, go out with us and, and have a good time and socialize. Uh, but we went to a restaurant and, you know, she, we, we all went to go sit in the booth and she just stood and looked at the booth uh, because she literally couldn't remember how to get into a booth at the restaurant. And that's the kind of, of thing where uh, you need to take that very seriously and, and talk to a physician if you're experiencing those kinds of situations. Right. And you don't associate. I remember when I finally, I finally had to put my mother in a nursing home and, you know, there were a lot of residents who were obviously in wheelchairs and, and this used to bother, you know, I, I said, will she not be bothered by the fact that, and she wasn't in a wheelchair. And they said, no, because she doesn't associate the wheelchair with being something that um, you're, you use when you, when you're disabled or, or compromised. It's just a chair, you know, for mm-hmm. her. So, you know, you lose that, that, that the reality of it, which is, which is kind of scary. Um, but the other day, I must say, I, I couldn't find my keys and I, I had seen a commercial and I, I looked for them in the freezer <laughs> thinking, oh, <laughs> and they weren't in there, thank goodness. Well, but, good. That's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. I said, well, um, but now we just, our first guest, Robin Wilson, said that sometimes you have to put your child's toys in the freezer so to get rid of some of the dust mites. So I'm hoping if I, if I find a, like, teddy bear in the freezer, I won't think that I totally <laughs> lost my right. mind. Well, if you um, remember that that's why you put yeah, it there, if you remember, that's you're why probably you put it okay. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, as you get older, as you said, there you do lose some of the, the some of your memory. It just isn't you're not as quick to remember things. I think as your brain gets a little bit older, so that that is pretty normal. It is, and that's why it's really critical to differentiate between uh, uh, what we call normal cognitive aging, uh, which typically means you're going to lose some cognition. And this starts for most people in their 20s. Honestly, they begin to um, have some decline in, in their you know cognitive. You know, not really firing on all eight cylinders anymore, if you will. Um, that's completely normal. What happens with Alzheimer's disease is there are changes in the brain um, that are related to um, some specific proteins, and you end up with some lesions in the brain. And when your memory uh, deficits uh, are caused by those changes or associated with those changes, they tend to be uh, much worse. Um, and so, so that's really the difference between normal cognitive aging and, and Alzheimer's disease. But also, unlike for breast cancer or cancer in general, I'm talking about the break it too for a genetic risk of breast cancer, if there is a genetic risk of Alzheimer's, meaning that your parent or relative has had it, you're not necessarily going to go get checked because that, first of all, A, it's too scary because it's not like cancer that they've had so much you know, success in, in both uh, helping to eradicate it and, and prevent it, it, it as well. Um, once you... It, Alzheimer's, you think, is sort of doom and gloom because, you know, what, first of all, if you actually have the test and they decide, what can you do about it? And therefore, do you not recommend that the average person, just because they fear genetic um, sort of connection, should have the test? Does that make well, any really, sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah so. it did, but there are really two separate issues there. And, and I think that the, the overriding question was, uh, uh, about diagnosis and, and knowing your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And the Alzheimer's Association is a huge supporter of people finding out uh, whether they have the disease as soon as possible. And there are a whole variety of good reasons for that. One of them is that there are some things that can cause a change in your memory and thinking abilities that are potentially reversible. 
So even if you do have the serious symptoms that we've talked about, such as forgetting what kind of car you drive or getting lost on the way home from you know the store that you go to frequently, things like this, you should you should not assume that it's Alzheimer's disease. You should go to a physician and 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 find out for sure because you may have a, a potentially reversible cause uh, of that loss in memory and thinking abilities. Um, the other thing is even if it is Alzheimer's disease. There are things that you can do now. Now, the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, you cannot slow down the progress of the disease, and that's something that we at the Alzheimer's Association are working on very hard. Our vision is a world without Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but in the meantime, there, as of yet, there's nothing that can be done to, to, to slow it down. What you can do, however, is take an active role in planning for your own future, such as your financial planning, such as your care planning, such as uh, end-of-life planning. These are, there are many important decisions that need to be made uh, when you have Alzheimer's disease, and it's best if you can make those decisions while you're still at the height um, of your ability. So it's very important. Early and accurate diagnosis is, is extremely important. Now, going back to the, <clears throat> the tests, um, now it's not just a blood test, right? You have to actually go for brain scans, correct? Do well, you don't have to go for a brain scan. Um, so what, what happens mostly with Alzheimer's disease is that it's a clinical diagnosis. So your physician will ask you some questions. They will ask you about any changes that you've noticed. Changes are particularly important. Changes that you've noticed in terms of your own memory and thinking abilities, when they've occurred, how bad they are. They may also want to talk to a person who lives with you or knows you very well and, and see what, they're, uh, what they've noticed, right? Um, Sometimes a physician will um, have a brain scan ordered as part of the diagnostic process, um, although not always. So some of the scans, um, typically you'll see a, uh, something called an MRI scan, which people mm-hmm. have had, you know, most people have, I don't know I'd say most people, but many people have had, you know, for one reason or another. Um, there are also some scans that are available called amyloid PET scans. Amyloid PET scans just became available in the past few years. Um, They are uh, a valuable tool for some people, but not for the vast majority. So the Alzheimer's Association worked very closely with the Society for Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging, SNMMI, um, to bring doctors and scientists together to come to a consensus on when these amyloid PET scans should and should not be used. And for most, for most people, um, they're not useful. We don't suggest that most people go out and get them, although there are some clinical cases where they can be very valuable. But if you go to your site and you can actually ask yourself those 10 questions, you're still okay, I would, I would hope. Um, so let's talk about genetics versus environmental. Um, what sure. are the genetic, without scaring me too much, what are the genetic um, preponderances, if, if you will, about if, if you have a parent or relative for your getting it? Well, when it comes to genetics, there are, um, are a couple of things that people need to know. Um, and the first one is that there is a basic difference uh, between what we call risk genes and what we call deterministic genes. Um, uh, so the, let's start with the deterministic genes. So the deterministic genes, uh, essentially the, the situation here is that if you have one um, uh, of these genetic mutations, um, if you will, it guarantees that you will develop Alzheimer's disease. 
typically um, very early. So you will develop Alzheimer's disease in your 40s or 50s rather than after the age of 65, which is typical for most people. That's extremely rare. People with these genetic deterministic genes, um, this of everyone with Alzheimer's disease, that may be 2 to 3% of everyone. So very, very rare. The other kind of genetic um, uh, concern or the other basic camp that you can put the you know, genetic uh, uh, contributions into uh, are risk genes. So these are genes that might make you more or less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease over the course of your life. But with these risk genes, you can have the riskier form of the gene and still never develop Alzheimer's disease. So there are some genetic contributions there, and, and some of them uh, we know uh, a lot about and others we're still learning about. That's an important part of the Alzheimer's Association grants program, uh, for example, is learning more about these genetic risk factors. Now, I must say I donated my mother's brain to science when she died because, you know, I think that, I mean, most people will not think of doing that to the, with their loved ones, um, to the, you know, but, but it's important because it, it, it helps then do some more studies on and, and maybe help future generations to know what's going on, right? No, you're exactly right, and I would say thank you for doing that, and I, and, uh, I hope more people do in the mm -hmm. future. Um, scientists are learning a lot about um, Alzheimer's disease and how it develops and progresses um, in living individuals, but there's, as of yet, there's no substitute uh, for having the brain tissue actually at the end of life, and so it is important for people to continue to donate their brains um, uh, to science. Um, so that we can, so that scientists can learn more about the causes and, and progression of the disease. Now, other than genetics, and again, you said that it's not always the case. What are have they been? Have you been discovering that more and more environmental causes could um, be the reason for this? Because the number of people with Alzheimer's seems to be growing. No, I mean, what 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 is that number? You mentioned over sixty five. That that's still pretty young. It is. There are actually, most people I think are surprised to, to learn that um, just in the United States, there are more than 5 million people uh, with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and uh, about 5.1 million of those people, it's a total of 5.3, and about 5.1 million of those people are over the age of 65, like you mentioned. Uh, and there are actually a lot of statistics like that that, that people can learn more about uh, by going uh, uh, to our website and downloading a copy of a report that we just released called the 2015 Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures Report. Um, and this has all sorts of information about prevalence and incidence and potential causes and what scientists have learned and the cost to our society. Uh, so, for example, one thing that might surprise a lot of people is that of those 5.1 million over the age of 65 who have Alzheimer's disease, uh, about two-thirds of them are women, for example, and most people are surprised uh, to learn that. Um, yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. But, you know, you mentioned also, and again, we had the, our first segment was about um, 
eco-friendly products and keeping your house kind of very um, mm-hmm. eco-friendly, eco you know, getting rid of some of the toxins and the chemicals. Uh, now that we're, you know, the world is getting more and more toxic, as you know, is that leading to you feel more cases of Alzheimer's and, and dementia because of our inability to process all this, all this toxic material out there? Well, that's, that's something that scientists are actively pursuing. I do want to talk about, uh, so I, I guess I'd step back and take a, you know, sort of the 30,000-foot view of that and say that what we're really talking about here are modifiable risk factors, so things mm-hmm. that you can do uh, that you can change um, in your life or things that you might be exposed to that probably will um, decrease your risk uh, of, of Alzheimer's disease or increase your risk of, of developing Alzheimer's disease. One thing in particular that we hear a lot about is, is aluminum. And I just want to say to you know, any of your listeners who, who may have heard this about aluminum, scientists have, ha, have largely determined that to be a myth. Uh, so that's something that you know, it, it makes the rounds and people are still very concerned. Should I use aluminum foil? Should I be concerned about aluminum in um, antiperspirants, for example, aluminum cook pots? And the answer is there is no good scientific evidence to suggest that aluminum is a cause of Alzheimer's disease. So that's the good news. Uh, one thing that, uh, and the other good news is that there are things that you can do to potentially reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, you can make sure that you stay physically active. If you have diabetes, you can control your blood sugar. Um, if you are a smoker, you should quit as soon as possible. And uh, these things are very good for your overall health and probably also have some benefit in terms of reducing your overall risk for dementia. So just going back to aluminum, now that I can bring my pots back, (laughs) um, but what are other, uh, you know, there are other factors, I mean, just in in general as far as um, some toxins that we should definitely stay away from, or is that too general to even go there as far as what well, you know, there are, something we there eat? Are, right. Well, there are hints in the literature here and there, you know, about uh, uh, various toxins, but nothing that has a preponderance of the evidence yet that says you should definitely stay away from this or that. And, you know, one example is, you know, we recently saw a study about a year and a half ago um, about DDT, for example, and people who have higher exposures to DDT. So this is epidemiological research, meaning they go out and they study a lot of people over a long period of time, uh, but it's not experimental science, meaning they don't, the scientists have very little control over how the research is done. They basically just go out and survey populations. And when you do that, you see things like uh, people who have had higher exposures to DDT are more likely to develop dementia. Um, It's questionable what kinds of conclusions you can draw from that, and more science needs to be done to understand, you know, whether that's a real relationship uh, or not for a variety of reasons. However, there are things that people can uh, easily control, you know, when it comes to uh, eating right, uh, that's going to be good for you. When it comes to, again, stopping smoking, if you want to talk about toxins, it's hard to get much more toxic um, than smoking cigarettes. And certainly it's good for your overall health as well as your your brain health um, to avoid uh, poor diet, sedentary lifestyle, uh, uh, smoking, 
There are other things actually that, that uh, people can you know learn more about uh, at alz.org if they're interested in, in you know what kinds of things they can do now to reduce their risk for cognitive decline later in life. Um, now, not that I want to lose half my audience, but uh, they say that drinking um, kind of kills brain cells. Does, have you found there a relation to excessive alcohol? I should say. In, in well, certainly, yes. Certainly, excessive alcohol is is not good for your uh, mental, your long term uh, uh, brain health, if you will. Um, so uh, I don't know that there is tremendous evidence about alcohol use and Alzheimer's disease specifically, uh, but certainly if you uh, overuse alcohol for too long, you are putting yourself at risk for a course of something called Korsakoff's dementia. So this goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is far and away the most common cause of dementia, but there are other causes as well, such as things like Korsakoff's disease from, from overuse of alcohol. Um, there is some literature out there that says that moderate use of alcohol may be protective um, over time. And so I think you know, these are things that are still being worked out um, by scientists. I think your best bet is, is you know, moderation in, in most things. And how about keeping your brain busy every day, like crossword puzzles, or to really um, keep it active no matter what? Is that a good thing to do every single day to challenge? It is. It is. And I'm glad you asked that question, actually, because that's something where, you know, I mentioned that scientists are learning more about prevention. Um, and uh, the Alzheimer's Association has a large scientific conference every year called the Alzheimer's Association International Conference. And scientists come there and they collaborate and they share with one another their, their latest findings. Um, and one of the things that was reported at our conference last year were uh, preliminary results from something called the FINGER trial. And this is a large study out of Finland um, of geriatric people, hence FINGER, Finnish Geriatric Study, F-I-N-G-E-R. And what this group is doing is for really the very first time, they have a very large, what we call randomized controlled clinical trial. And what that simply means is that scientists are able to look at uh, these lifestyle factors that they're studying in the same way they do with drugs, meaning some people get what's essentially a placebo treatment and other people get uh, what is uh, the active treatment. In this case, the active treatment is a combination of five things, and those five things are exercise, socialization, so social activities, mm-hmm. cognitive activities, so you know, doing things that keep the mind busy, um, uh, correct diet, so a heart-healthy diet. And then finally, number five is if you have cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure um, or uh, high cholesterol to control those appropriately. And, and so this is about 2,000 people. About 1,000 people are in the, the no treatment group or the placebo treatment, which is essentially standard medical care. And then the other 1,000 people were randomly assigned to this active treatment group. And uh, we're only about two years into this study now, but what the scientists have already been able to show is that even after just two years, the people in that active treatment group have better cognition than the people in the placebo group. We don't yet know whether that's going to translate into protection from full-blown dementia, 
but there certainly seems to be some protective effect there in terms of cognitive decline. Oh, that is very, very good to know. So you feel that also stress. I mean, that's something that we all should avoid that. That just, that doesn't do anybody any good <laughs> ever. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and all of and these you know, five of things the can help reduce your stress. No, it. that's absolutely right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, probably the worst thing you can do is, you know, retire when you're 52 years old and then spend the rest of your days sitting on the couch watching television by yourself. You know, if you stay active, stay physically active, stay socially active, care for your emotional health, stay um, active in terms of reading, uh, in terms of having uh, conversations with people that you like and care about. If you like puzzles, continue doing puzzles. Um, those things are all going to be good for you in the long run. Uh, because remember, the key thing to remember is that Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease. Uh, and the brain uses a lot of the energy and a lot of the nutrients that are in your body. And so the healthier you can keep your body, the healthier your brain is going to be in the long term. Well, well, well very well said. And, and hopefully soon there will be a cure, if not a cure-cure, but just a way to, because um, you mentioned preventative um, methods, but also even if you do have it, that it's not going to turn into a full-blown Alzheimer's, that there's a way that you can, it'll go into remission of sorts, and then you can still live an active, um, well-rounded life without having to worry that, that it will be, um, you know, it, it that'll affect you. So, as a matter of fact, though, the other day, I'm, I, I said to, I, I meet a woman on the street, and I said, you look very familiar. <laughs> Do I know you? And she said, well, actually, I live on your floor. <laughs> I'm going for those five things just immediately, but you know, it's always, um, <laughs> it, it's always, um, you know, very scary. And, and you think about it as, um, it, it's not even that the actual patient, it's the relative that, that deals with the patient that it's, it's very, um, it's difficult for everyone, you know? Oh, absolutely. As, yeah. I mean, that's something that we, you know, we've actually documented that in the, facts and figures report that I mentioned earlier, um, that uh, caregiving is very difficult for friends and family members, uh, emotionally and in terms of uh, cost, believe it or not. And we know that for every person with Alzheimer's disease, there are approximately three people who are providing uh, what we call informal care or unpaid care for that person. So I mentioned already that there are 5.3 million Americans with Alzheimer's disease, and there are nearly 16 million Americans who are providing um, unpaid care for them, um, including nearly a quarter of a million children, people yeah, uh, under, the, under, yeah, under the age of 18. Um, and one of the things that we see is, is that when you ask these caregivers um, to rate the level of stress associated with this caregiving, 60% of them rate it as either high or very high. Um, 40% of them, so almost half, are experiencing symptoms of clinical depression. Uh, so this is very stressful. Very it's, stressful. Uh, actually, it is. I rate it off the charts, Dr. Fargo. Yeah, I rate exactly. it off the yeah. charts. That's why I'm hoping, praying, that there will be, in the near future, a cure for Alzheimer's. And, and hopefully all of us will uh, go on to the, uh, your site and contribute whatever we have to, to, to sort of, you know, and, and I'm sure not as much funds are available for Alzheimer's as they are for cancer. Um, so hopefully we can remedy that and do as much as we can to fund research that will get us a cure or 
a remission, something, some very, very positive news. And, and, and we are on the way there, as you have said, which I, I am very appreciative to you and the Alzheimer's Association for working so hard to make this a reality. So tell us again one more time, Doctor, where we can find the Alzheimer's Association. So our website is alz.org, um, and you can also find a, uh, an 800 number there as well. So people can call anytime, day or night, 365 days a year, and uh, get help in their, their own language. Even if they're not English speakers, uh, we have uh, services there in 200 different languages. And everyone, do what you can to help eradicate this disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Fargo, for being with us. Thank you. Everyone, that's our show. Thank you again, Dr. Fargo. Thank you, Laurie, as always. And thank you all for listening. This is Jane Wilkins-Michael. I will see you next week. Until then, be wise, be well, be better than before. Have a question for Jane and want to be on the next Better Than Before show? Drop us a line via instant feedback at bmajor.org. The Jane Wilkins Michael Show is brought to you by Express Scripts and is produced by Major Radio for Clear Channel's iHeartRadio and bmajor.org.